Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, The Hand, by Guy de Montpassant. Although the version I'm holding in my hand is uh, The Mystery, um, which was uh, a very early translation from the scrapbook, March 1910, translated by a lady named Mary Kay Ford. I don't know anything about her. Um, and it was originally published as La Main, La, La Main um, on Sunday, December 23rd, 1883, in Le Galois, which, uh, or Galois? I don't Galois. know. Oh, well. um, which was a daily newspaper, um, a literary magazine, I guess, except it's a newspaper, um, published in Paris, and it's on the front page, as I think pretty much all of Montpassant's stories that I've found in there have been. Um, but I don't know if you know this, Eric. This <laughs> is also his first short story. Really? Yes, sort of. <laughs> Wait a minute. He was born in 1850. Uh sounds about right. Oh and yeah, just, August 18 uh, August 5th, 1850. And this is 1883. Yes. Uh, he is incredibly well known as a master of the short story and yet if what you say is correct since he died in 93 that means this entire output no. was in 10 years. No, no, no. See, what happened was his first short story got rewritten by him. And that first short story has a slightly different title, although it is often confused with this title. And confused by me, confused by others. And the story is. Yes. And they're not the same story. They are set in different locations, they have different. Um, events that happen within them. There's no... The frame is different. Um, but uh, because of the two uh, titles being so similar and the translation with the titles, you know, the version we have is The Mystery. Another version is The Hand or... Um, uh, in fact, there's The Flayed Hand. Um, a number of other other slightly different titles are exist in in translation. So I'm not sure why he came back to it, uh, but I have a good theory. But before we get into all of that, um, I suggested this one to you. I don't think I told you uh, all of my interest in sending it to you, but you agreed to do it, so you must have seen something in it. I do, indeed. Would you care to give people a summary or a pricey of what you see in this story? Well, I'd rather give them a pricey of the story uh, rather than what I see in it. Um, <laughs> okay. It starts out with uh, a notice, a third person uh, comment that Monsieur Bermoutier, who is the chief inspector, is speaking to a group, apparently all of women, um, about the upcoming uh, about a murder that has happened in Saint-Cloud, which is a suburb of Paris. Mm -hmm. um, 
completely unsolved. Nobody knows what's going on. It's it's all the rage to speculate about what this is. Uh, one of the uh, more disturbed among the auditors says, well, well, it's terrible. I mean, this is it's like almost supernatural that we can't understand what all of this is. And the magistrate says, oh, no, we may never know the whole truth. But as for the supernatural, nothing like that at all. Let me give you another story. And then begins the inner story, which is the story of the the flayed or skinned hand. And that story is one in which earlier in his career, Monsieur Bermoutier had been the chief inspector, not of Paris, but the chief inspector of um, Acaccio or Acaccio. I don't know how it's pronounced. It's a town in Corsica. Mm-hmm which therefore may have an Italian pronunciation or a French pronunciation. Uh, Corsica is closer to Italy, and much of it is Italian, but it's part of France. Um, And in fact, he says he's there trying to study the vendetta, and vendetta, although we now use that word in English, is originally a blood feud uh, in Italy. In in Italy, excuse me, in Corsica, he is uh, trying to find out uh, about a, an Englishman who's moved in and taken a lease on a place and keeps to himself. But he comes to know the man. He m- tries to make sure that he gets to know the man. And in the man's home, he finds a flayed hand attached to a black but gold embroidered um, uh, tapestry on the wall by a chain, uh, <laughs> a chain strong enough to hold an elephant. Uh, you don't need that. Belmoutier reports to have said to Sir John Rowell, who has, uh, for reasons unknown, come to isolate himself in this place, accompanied only by a servant he picked up along the way. Um, oh, yes, I do, he says. He spends an hour a day practicing his shooting, and he always has guns with him wherever he is. After a while, uh, the narrator and Sir John Rowell uh, become not intimate. They know each other well enough that they don't need to bother to see each other very often. But then, in fact, it turns out that Raoul is discovered murdered by his servant. The murder is done by means that we do not know, but it's described as five puncture marks in his neck. And his mouth, uh, we find, has the first two digits of a finger that must have been bitten off by the mouth. And while Bermoutier can't sleep well after all of these strange occurrences, nobody knows how the man was murdered. Three different times he's awakened by seeing what he thinks is a hand scuttling across the floor uh, as if it were a spider. Um, and then it goes away, and that's the end of that, and the story is never solved. And the question is, is it supernatural? Was this hand of Raoul's enemy that had been mangled and skinned and preserved, was this, in fact, taking its revenge? That would be supernatural, but we don't know what causes it. And having told that story, um, Raoul uh, Bermute then turns to the women and they say, uh, well, we don't understand that. That doesn't that doesn't make us clear at all. How could that be? And Monsieur Bumontier, still smiling, said, and this is the last line, I told you that my explanation wouldn't suit you. 
So I, I must say, I, I know that you have a lot to offer us about this story in terms of its uh, its surrounds, mm-hmm. how it's embedded and the influence that it's had. But I just like to throw in. Um, it's worth reading on its own, too. Yeah, it certainly is. It's short, but um, I'd like to say that among the many reasons I like the story is that it is not, in fact, a story about a hand and it's not a story about a mystery. It's a story about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that frame is so important. It's crucial. And in part, I think what the story is telling us is that our man, the narrator of the the third person protagonist and the first person inner narrator, our man is a chief inspector, which is someone who's supposed to be able to see things, right? That's what an inspector mm-hmm. does. And put them in order. And here it turns out that he cannot. But I would offer one fact from outside the story and then turn it over to you for your uh, trove of facts. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1883, when this version was published, or maybe earlier, when an earlier version was published, um, every French person would have known this little town, which is described as being on the sea and surrounded by mountains. That's all that's mentioned of it. Ajaccio? Is that the town you're referring to? Yes. Yes, okay. Or Ajaccio, because if, if it's an Italian pronunciation. Mm-hmm. And the reason they all would know it is that it's the birthplace of Napoleon, mm-hmm. whose life goes, yeah. life goes from one island to another. Right? He ends on Elba. And... Uh, therefore there there is a frame to bonaparte's life that is entirely alighted here by someone who's supposed to be able to see things then you have to wonder are things just inexplicable or are they supernatural that's the story that um the question the story leaves me with among others Um, So you asked for a pricey of my feelings. My feelings are there's a lot going on here about culture, sexism, law and narrative that makes this story that looks like it's about the supernatural. uh, That part is predictable. But what we make of it, that part's not predictable. And that's the part I like the best. I, I, I love the frame and I love all thinking about all the things you're saying. I I actually did tell my students when I was going through them with this, you know, that Corsica is famous for, uh, you know, one thing basically. <laughs> it's it's where Napoleon's from. If if you if you know one thing about Corsica, you know, Sar- Sardinia that's famous for its fish. Corsica's famous for its n- Napoleon. Um, and Napoleon left. I also have to explain who Napoleon is, right? He leaves uh, Corsica and goes to the mainland and uh, becomes the emperor and. And then, as you say, they imprison him on an island, um, a different island, um, and he he dies there, um, <laughs> probably from poison. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, resonance there. And I want to point out in that earlier story that I did talk uh, mention briefly, published in 1875, uh, so it's quite quite a ways before this one in 1883. Uh, uh, um, it's also set near the sea. Now, there is no island uh, element, but the sea is important, I think, um, in that there's, in both stories, and, and especially in this one, something I don't think you really focused on, um, 
is the sort of exoticism of the uh, character named Sir John Rowell. He's traveled to India. He's traveled to to um, uh, Africa, and to in fact, the hand comes from America. Um, and this is a, uh, a a phenomenon you see a lot more in later pulp stories, um, where exoticism of the East is invoked. And I think that's even the word. Uh, he, he, it says he traveled to the East, but America is to the West, right? So it's a little unclear. But the important part is the idea of exoticism and the sea are connected. You see this in the Horla, um, where a Brazilian ship comes in uh, and he waves to it. And then the events of that story begin to happen. And then the other thing that's really cool that's going on in this story is that frame. And uh, we actually have a very similar one in an earlier uh, in fact, our first Guy de Maupassant story that we did on this podcast, uh, The Wolf, if you remember that one, also known as The White Wolf, about two brothers who, um, in not in the frame, but in the, in the actual story proper, uh, go hunting and one is killed in the pursuit of uh, the wolf. And then when uh, the other brother catches it, um, he strangles it gently. And then the whole thing is framed by a man at a dinner party um, who is not a hunter and who never hunts. Um, and this story is greatly, I think, about hunting this, uh, the hand um, in, the, in that center frame, who never hunts. He says, um, me and my family never hunt because of this story. And all the women are like <laughs> responding kind of the opposite way they do here, which is they're very intrigued and they surround the the inspector they make a ring around him while he has his back to the fire right it's almost like they're the predators <laughs> and he's regaling them with stories there the women turn back to the other men at the table who are hunters and say still it does involve the blood <laughs> right um the sense that uh the pursuit is manifold here and in one of the adaptations, this has been adapted to audio drama a couple of times, um, radio drama, they, they reach into these little details and make all sorts of great hay from them. But um, I want to read a little bit from the opening of the original uh, publication, the 1873, uh, sorry, 1875 publication, which was not published under his own name. It was published under a pseudonym Joseph Prunier, <laughs> P-R-U-N-I-E-R. Um, I just want to read the opening of this because the tone is completely different. It's very jocular. One evening, about eight months ago, I met with some college comrades at lodgings of our friend Louis. We drank punch and smoked, talked of literature and art, and made jokes like any other company of young men. Suddenly, the door flew open, and one who had been my friend since boyhood burst in like a hurricane. "'Guess where I come from?' he cried. "'I bet the Mabille,' responded one. "'No,' another said. "'You're too gay. You came for borrowing money. You came from borrowing, borrowing money, from burying a rich uncle, or from pawning your watch. "'You're getting sober,' cried a third. "'And you've scented the punch in Louis's room.' You came up here to get drunk again. You're all wrong, he replied. I came from P, and this is a, an unnamed town. 
starting with P. In Normandy, where I have spent eight nights, and whence I have brought one of my friends, a great criminal, whom I ask permission to present to you. With these words he drew from his pocket a long black hand from which the skin had been stripped. It had been severed at the wrist. Its dry and shriveled shape a narrow yellowed nail still clinging to the fingers made it frightful to look upon. The muscles which showed that its first owner had possessed of great strength were bound in place by a strip of parchment-like skin. And then they go on to play with it um, and do all sorts of very boyish teenager things. Um, and the narrator, uh, who is telling the story, um, ends ends the story uh, by burying his friend, who uh, was killed in a very similar manner as in this story. So it has the same uh, outcome, but the vendetta is, uh, we find is the dead man's hand came back to life rather than whatever explanation we have within here. Um, Now, I don't know exactly why Montpesson decided to rewrite it, but I can tell that uh, he thought it was a very interesting story. And I think other authors have thought it an interesting story too. I, I want to point out that a uh, great story um, by W.W. W. Jacobs, the only story he's really remembered for, uh, is called The Monkey's Paw. It came out uh, after this story, and it's po- very possible Montpessant, uh, you know, was a, he spoke English as far as I know. Um, he was very chummy with the English. Um, that story was pretty famous, The Hand, in 1883, and likely, it's very likely that uh, Jacobs knew about it, and he took an aspect of it, if you recall the monkey's paw, which is a dry, withered hand and a, a horrible thing that happens, but it's very, very different. Another author who has, uh, I think, a connection to this is a, a author named Richard Connell, who has a famous story called The Most Dangerous Game, which is, again, the only story he's famous for. Um, it's about headhunting or hunting humans, and it has an island um, and a man showing another man his um, uh, trophy collection. Um, they're both hunters, as in this story. And then there's one kind of animal. In fact, there's a, a scene that's very similar. He says... Don't you find all of these games so dangerous? And he says, nah, they are not dangerous. The most dangerous game, and there's the title, is man. And instead of having a hand as a trophy, he has a head, or human heads as the trophy. And that that turns into an action set piece story. And it's a very fun story, but it's different enough. That was originally titled The Hounds of Zaroff, by the way, that story. Um, Now, the exciting part here, Eric, other than all that stuff is yeah. that this is kind of a true story. When Montpesson was a very young man, a teen, he was uh, on the coast of um, Normandy. He's uh, visiting Dieppe, um, which was a very popular town for British artists to come across and uh, do their art. The light was better or something. Um, <laughs> they were also able to spend time with their mistresses. And a young English poet had set up camp in a, a house with another uh, English artist. Uh, the poet's name was Swinburne. You may have heard of him. 
<laughs> Swinburne uh, is a notorious figure, um, very popular uh, with his poetry, very much respected for his poetry. Um, but he apparently had a flayed hand. And what happened one day was that Swinburne was doing this new novelty thing of uh, swimming in the sea. <laughs> and he got swept out to sea um, and was in danger of drowning. And if, uh, when this happened, a fishing boat um, or perhaps a rowboat, it's not, the stories change, um, uh, rescued him. He made uh, friends with the rescuers, and one of them was Montpessant. He was invited to stay or come to lunch at uh, Swinburne's home in Dieppe, and uh, he came three times. And throughout his later life and in other people's correspondence, we get uh, snippets of what happened and what it was like in those conversations. Um, Swinburne and his perhaps lover had a flayed hand. They also had a monkey. <laughs> um, they had a servant who was probably a young teenager. And uh, the servant ended up killing the monkey and perhaps hanging it from a tree or, or perhaps shooting it. There's many different stories. Um, in any case, uh, sometimes <laughs> during these visits, these three visits, uh, the young Montpessant says that he was served meat. And when he asked what kind of meat it was, they said it is meat. Um, another example of the story, uh, the story changing is that the meat was actually monkey meat. Um, and, at one point, it said that Swinburne put, or, or maybe it was Potter, who was uh, the other artist there, put uh, the flayed hand in his mouth. Um, this is a very f funny, funny situation because we're getting the story at least three times from Montpessant in, uh, and from his relatives, who were somewhat famous as well. And in any case... Uh, this seemed to have had a profound effect upon the young man. There is an excellent and very long essay I found, I think, uh, originally back in 2012 when I first wrote about uh, the flayed hand. Um, it's, it's on the Public Domain Review website, and it's called An Unlikely Lunch When Montpessant Met Swinburne. And the essay is mostly about um, how the north coast of... France is used uh, by English artists, but this incident is uh, perhaps the most uh, intriguing part of all of that, but it, it gives a massive background for it. So I just thought that that was an amazing experience that he literally had. Um, we don't know where the, uh, the original flayed real hand came from. We don't know what happened to it. Um, but Montpessant eventually purchased it uh, at some point, and we don't know what happened to, to it. So this is a very strange story. And I think that in the telling of the original short, which was his first short story, and in the time between that, 1875 and 1883, he probably told people this story. Uh, we know that he wrote it down and... Uh, told it to other people of visiting Swinburne. Um, and it seemed to attract uh, some attention, I think. And hence, we've got this uh, chief inspector talking about a mystery which is mentioned. And I, I thought, oh, maybe St. Cloud is uh, the St. Cloud murder 
um, is some incident that I, I should know about. I tried to track it down. The only thing I can come close to is there's a movie uh, called Diabolik. You know this movie? Also, I think it was Diabolical is the English version of it. Um, it's a that's with Gene Seberg. It sounds right. It's a, it, it's a uh, sort of artsy movie from the '60s, I think, and then it was remade in the '90s. Um, and I've seen both, but they were so long ago, and I didn't know about this connection then. Um, I, I, I figure that this this um, murder uh, at St. Cloud is something like our version of Epstein's death. You know, it's just it it, it can't be explained by. <laughs> looking at it um, uncritically. And so when he gives this whole other explanation for this very mysterious murder, uh, I think that that frame is so important. So I, I just, I'm laying all this stuff on you, but I, I thought <laughs> it's so cool that, uh, that it, it has a basis in reality. Like much of Montpessant's fiction, the Horla, um, you know, it's based on his own mental illness. It's not based on nothing. It's based on his own terrible experiences with mental illness. So, there's that. It, indeed. Um, I'm always reminded, though, of the student. Let's let's call this person mythical. I don't want to be seen to be. Uh, slighting students because in fact I love them I've loved mine um, who says that the reason Poe wrote huh. and you pick any one of his stories the way he did is that he was an alcoholic right to which one must reply 10% of the population of the United States is technically speaking alcoholic how many Poes do we find All right um, it is, of course, so, I trust you completely, Jesse, that there are things in Maupassant's life that become part of his art. Mm -hmm. I think it's still crucial for us to understand how he makes it his art. For instance, in the early version of the story, you, you give us the line that the hand had parchment-like skin. Mm-hmm. Well, parchment isn't just any old piece of leather. Parchment is specifically flayed skin processed at, to be used for writing. Mm -hmm. And perhaps there's a clue to the, the revision of the story already nascent in that choice of descriptor for the hand. And when we speak of a hand... We speak of a number of things. It's a very rich metaphor. Um, we can talk about someone having a fine hand. And by that, what we mean is good penmanship. Mm -hmm. um, so to take a, a hand that looks like it is designed for writing and instead have it exist only because it is the residue of an act of extraordinary brutality. Um, that's clear in the version we read, that the hand seems to have been severed cleanly as if by some vastly powerful Im implement well above the wrist, in fact, as if uh, an axe had been taken to the arm. Um, that really is hunting the human. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, what he is trying to do is dishand, disarm his enemy. But the hand alone is enough to wreak vengeance, as it is if one can tell the right story. I, I, I think that the the sexual, the gender roles here um, become more powerful when we realize that this is all women. And you say they are, in fact, um, encircling Bermutier mm-hmm. as if they were wolves. But I think, in fact, they are mistaken. They are titillated yes. by his story and attracted to it. Um, They're shaking. Yes, but that is a frisson, mm-hmm. right? That is that is a a fright to be cultivated, which is what Maupassant does by writing the story, totally, and then rewriting the story, and clearly it works. This idea of the human hunt and what happens thereafter uh, becomes the seventh victim by Robert Sheckley and becomes mm-hmm. the tenth victim, um, a, a later Italian and film. Predator. Uh, uh, it it goes on and on. Uh, but Predator isn't a human being doing the hunting. What makes them, uh, the aliens, my, my, important, my, right? My point is here is that they are humans who are justifying their own human hunting. It, it borders on the notion of cannibalism, yes. which is the one of only two universal taboos. If you look at all cultures, there are only two taboos that they all have in common. And one of them is the prohibition against um, eating human flesh for nutrition. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's ritual cannibalism, but just ordinary, you know, gee, it's Thursday evening, what's for dinner? Oh, <laughs> grandma. Yep. You know, that, that's, that's taboo. But that seems to be what's going on here. The Everything is being broken. Uh, and part of what's being broken is the idea that a story has an understandable resolution. Yes, yes. It's so important that the end, and that's, I think, why the title The Mystery is actually a better title in some respects. It it's obviously doesn't help you distinguish it from from other stories when you're looking around for a story to read. But um, the mystery here is could refer to the mystery of St. Cloud, could refer to who or what did the murder with the points in the neck, right? Mm-hmm. But also, what is the mystery of this attraction that the women have to horror stories? It's not just men who like horror stories. Women like them too. I think one of the the, the little hints that I, I suspect is here, in, in as much as we have a, a harem, it's a, a group of women and not a single man in the hearers, mm-hmm. as far as we can tell, in the auditors, um, we have a clear distinction between the outer and inner stories, which are about murder, death, and the role of women, which is as the bearers of life. And life becomes more precious when we understand that there is an alternative. So there is a kind of thrill that women have a really crucial place to play in the world when the world is a place where life doesn't just go on. It's a place where even men can take it away as well as using them as vessels to to create it. Mm-hmm. 
I think there is, as with Dracula and many other supernatural stories that prey on uh, that on death, but have wives involved, there is something um, seductive about mm-hmm. this kind of a mystery. Absolutely, it's it's funny. Um, you said the uh, the harem that line or something very close to it comes up almost right in the next paragraph that I didn't continue reading uh, from the original. I'll just read that. This is uh, the hand of the murderer. Uh, Just fancy, said my friend, the other day they sold the effects of an old sorcerer recently deceased, well known in all the country. Every Saturday night he he used to go to witch gatherings on a broomstick. He practiced the white magic and the black, gave blue milk to the cows, and made them wear tails like that of the companion of St. Anthony. The old scoundrel always had a deep affection for this hand, which he had said was that of a celebrated criminal executed in 1736 for having thrown his lawful wife headfirst into a well, for which I do not blame him. And then, hanging in the belfry, the priest who had married him, Ah, also throwing the priest down the well. After this double exploit, he went away, and during his subsequent career, which was brief but exciting, he robbed 12 travelers, smoked a score of monks in their monastery, and made a seraglio of a convent. Amazing. Right? So, and I had not read that version of the story. It's, but a, it's amazing. You're is, absolutely right. It, it, it's, it's buried much more economically in, in the later version, yes. whether that version is better for inviting um, more detailed reflection, I think it is or the not. earlier version is better for laying it out. That's something that um, you and I could talk about for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's why there is in this case, uh, as in so many, always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.